don't know if you've realized how many passages we've been reading them over the last few weeks emphasize how the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It's the uh, third psalm we've looked at that emphasizes that, and that's the chesed that we've been looking at from the book of Ruth and discovering. That chesed is given to us from our God, his steadfast, faithful love. Will you join me in prayer? Let's go to our God and, and pray as we turn to, our, turn to his word. Father in, in heaven, we, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your steadfast, enduring love that you've given to us. You've um, lavished that upon us uh, in no greater way than in your son, Jesus Christ, who at the culmination of history, past, present, and future, died on a cross to make propitiation for our sins. And so we give you praise. Praise for your sovereignty, praise for your providence, and how you've worked all things out in the way that you do. And you are doing all these things in a manner that will be for your glory and for our good. As we turn our attention to the book of Ruth this last time, this month, I I, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you'd help us to see what your word says, that we would understand, and Lord, most of all, that we would have softened hearts and that we would respond and that we would emulate the kind of chesed, the kind of faithful, loving kindness that we find in this beautiful story. Please teach us, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, I, um, you know, think this is really strange, but one of the things on my bucket list is doing jury duty. You know, I love that we live in this country where, where we have this privilege and this honor of being judged by a, a jury of our peers. And if I ever... If I was ever in that seat, I would, uh, I, I'm thankful that we have a system where, where my peers are the ones that, that judge me, not, not uh, necessarily somebody else that, uh, um, that would. And so as a citizen, I, I think it's one of the greatest privileges we have. And so I've always looked forward to this opportunity, not that I want to sit there and judge a person or uh, relish in, in what's taking place in that room, but I've, I've always wanted to enjoy that part of my citizenship. And so for years, I've, I've, I've waited for that. In Colorado, I got summoned twice and sent home. And in Texas, never happened. We've been here for 10 years in Iowa now, and I have not once received a jury summons. And so you can imagine my excitement a month ago when I got that card in the mail. And then yesterday, I got the email that said, never mind. <sighs> Such a disappointment. I've always been fascinated by our system, and I, and I do consider it a privilege. Uh, but I also, I also love a, a, and enjoy a great courtroom drama. You know, a story where, where it just unfolds, you discover the facts as this well-told story unfolds. It's enjoyable. I, I'm a fan of some of the older trial movies, which probably explains why I tortured my kids with uh, reading and then watching To Kill a Mockingbird on, in their freshman year, Right? One of them's, yeah, and the other one's crying. Um, but what makes a great courtroom drama? First, I would suggest you need suspense. You need tension. It's not always knowing who wins the case, but it's how the verdict comes to pass, right? Second, uh, you need an, an unpredictable character. Someone upon whom the whole case is going to turn. Maybe it's their honesty. Maybe it's their greed. Maybe it's the uh, ulterior motives that can swing the outcome of all the events. And then the third thing that you need is a, in a great courtroom drama, uh, you need a good twist. 
uh, your opinion of the characters, your opinion of the case, your opinion of the entire story, uh, invol- and, and what the characters are involved in can swing with a really great twist to the story. It can change the whole outcome uh, of what you believe is right. Well, today we conclude the story of Ruth with the fourth act in our five-week little mini-series. In our, first, in our first week, we met our main character, Elimelech, only to find that our main character died in verse 3. He didn't last very long. And so it turns out that, that actually his widow, Naomi, is the focus of the book. And God gave bread to his people, and, and he ended the famine. But would God provide for this destitute widow? As we've seen, God's providence came in the form of two individuals. First, through her daughter-in-law, Ruth, a, a woman uh, who came from a foreign land and, and attached herself to her mother-in-law. And, and then also, number two, a close relative and a landowner named Boaz. And it was through the assiduous labor of Ruth and the generosity of Boaz that God amply met the immediate needs of Naomi. God uses the, the loving kindness, the chesed, and he uses the grace, the, the chen that we've been learning about. He uses the loving kindness and the grace of others to provide for the needs of his people. But last week, Naomi recognized that she needed to provide for Ruth so that she might, have, she might also have the security of a home and the security of a provider. And so Naomi set into motion a series of events, a series of steps, in which she carefully arranged and told Ruth what to do. She carefully arranged this marriage between Ruth and Boaz. Naomi demonstrated chesed to Ruth. Ruth demonstrated chesed to Naomi when she changed the plan and offered herself as a second-class wife, a a slave wife, a concubine, rather than a a wife as an equal. That way, she would have to be bought from from Naomi, and Naomi would be provided for for the rest of her life. And so Ruth demonstrates chesed. And Boaz demonstrated chesed to both of these widows. He responds with kindness, but alas, at the end of chapter 3, we discover that there is a closer relative who had the first opportunity to buy the land and to buy Ruth. He promised to settle the matter immediately, however. And so Boaz says that he's going to go and take care of things. And that brings us to the finale, which begins with a great courtroom drama filled with tension, filled with unpredictable characters, and a great twist. The book of Ruth is, is not a love story in the traditional sense. Uh, the, the, the problem is not about Ruth finding the love of her life so that she can ride off into the sunset on a white horse and live happily ever after, right? That's usually what we're thinking with a love story, and that's what a lot of people think about the book of Ruth, but that's not the point. The book of Ruth is about the path God's, God's providence that is demonstrated in restoring a widow who has lost everything. But as we enter the legal setting of chapter 4, we we have to find ourselves cheering for Ruth and Boaz, right? Uh, You just, you want them to get married. You want this to happen. Don't don't you want that? Isn't that something you're longing for in the story? We we cheer them on. Boaz has, has shown incredible grace, incredible loving kindness, and Ruth has demonstrated herself as a woman of character, a woman of quality. And so certainly, he has to be the one. The story's led us there. We're cheering for it. And we read in verses 1 through 3, that now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. 
And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Well, these first three verses, really, you know, essentially they set the background for us. And a lot of people just kind of pass over that as, you know, they're just setting the scene. But there's a lot going on here that's really important. There's a lot of cultural things that are really important that, that were commonplace 3,000 years ago, but may not be quite well understood today. And so first of all, you have to understand the importance of the gate. The gate was not only a defensive place that would protect the town and protect the city from invaders and robbers, but the gate was also uh, the courtroom. The gate is where transactions took place. It's where anything official, anything legal would happen. If you had a, a transaction that needed witnesses, you would go to the gate, and, and you would have elders there who would, who would witness the transaction. If there's a complaint that you had against someone, if there was um, something that needed to be resolved between two people, they would go to the elders, and the elders would decide those cases. And this is what happened there in Bethlehem. Boaz sits down. He waits for the man to come by that he's talked to Naomi and Ruth about. And he sets the stage as he waits for the other party to arrive where he's also going to have official witnesses. But also notice the importance of this concept of the kinsman redeemer. We've talked a little bit about it as we've gone through the book of Ruth so far. Uh, the word is goel in, in Hebrew. Uh, the, go, the word goel is a little bit more involved in it than oftentimes we think of a kinsman redeemer. Uh, but essentially, a Goel was a close family member who defended and protected his relatives. That was his responsibility. He was responsible to restore family rights for those who were disadvantaged. He was responsible to restore land and to restore the enslaved. He was a close relative who would even marry his brother's widow to provide for her on many occasions. But, but a Goel, if you read the book of Leviticus, you find... Uh, the same Hebrew word, but it's translated in our English Bibles as the avenger of blood. It, it was a little bit of a different concept, but the same person. The goel was the person who carried out justice. And if there was a murder, rather than the government take care of it, it was the goel who brought out justice. And so he was the avenger of blood as well. He was a family member who took care of the rest of the family. He was the protector, but it's the same Hebrew word. And so there's... Boaz, and he is a kinsman redeemer, but there's another relative that's closer than Boaz who has first rights to the land, first rights, rights to redeem the land, and first rights to marry Ruth. Boaz calls the redeemer friend in our English translation. Um, we, we've noticed through Ruth that, you know, Ruth, Ruth is, is used in, in, um, in seminaries and Bible colleges. It's one of the first books that you translate as a Hebrew student. Uh, but there's a few phrases throughout that the Hebrew student comes to and goes, what, what do I do with this? Uh, and, and this is one of them. And it, it, the, the Hebrew is Poloni Almoni. Sounds kind of fun, doesn't it? Poloni Almoni. Poloni Almoni comes by, and, um, a, and a lot of scholars even debate on, you know, is that really his name? Um, or is there something else happening here? If you want to translate it really literally, it, it basically, well, it's not literally, it's my paraphrase. It basically means Mr. So-and-so. Uh, Poloni Amoni, Mr. So-and-so. Uh, um, already, some of you don't like this guy, right? Uh, 
He has the right to marry Ruth if he wants to. He has the right to buy the land from Naomi. And you don't want that to happen, do you? And in a book about Chesed, the narrator is kind enough to this man who you already dislike, uh, not to mention his name, so that all of history looks back on the guy and goes, what a creep. In a book about Chesed, uh, understand that you know, he, he's, he's not evil. His actions aren't evil. He, he, he simply, compared to, to Ruth and compared to Boaz, he just, this guy can't stand a chance. No matter what he does next, he can't win in Bethlehem society, and he can't win with us, the reader. And rather than pin the, his name onto the pages of, of Scripture for all of mankind to read, the author just graciously calls him, I believe, Mr. So-and-so, Poloni Almoni. Um, in English, you might just politely call him friend, like is translated in your Bible. That's a good translation. But notice how Boaz begins his presentation. He speaks of Naomi, and he speaks of the parcel of land instead of mentioning Ruth at all, and he doesn't mention any of the wedding arrangements. And this is the big question uh, of the book of Ruth. Who will act as a redeemer to, to bring the land back into the family? And the Moabitess isn't even mentioned yet, and so the tension is built. But also notice that there's also an unpredictable suitor. Boaz continues in verse 4, and he says, So, Poloni Almoni, I thought I would, uh, I thought I'd tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz just happened to hear about this, right? Naomi's selling the land. There's an opportunity. And, and he comes to Mr. So-and-so and says, hey, hey, I just happened to hear about this. I'd like to buy it, but you have rights to it, and I want to I honor your rights. And so he puts it out there. And, and you have to understand, there are, there are benefits to buying this land. There's benefits to redeeming Naomi's land. If you were in Poloni Almoni's situation, you also would consider it. In fact, you had a, in a heartbeat, you go, yeah, this is an incredible opportunity. It, it was a, a limited investment, and... And it had immediate returns. It'd be like investing $100,000 to gain $500,000 um, in, in two or three years. Uh, it, it would be, and I don't know if those are the exact figures. I'm just throwing that out there as kind of a proportion. It, it would be, it'd be a, immediate returns on a limited investment. And by redeeming the land, it would increase his inheritance. And, and he would also have very limited care for Naomi. He, he would provide for her until the end of her life. And that would be the right thing to do, and, and he seems that he's willing to do that. But, but the returns would far outweigh the cost. And in verse 5, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Goel said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So understand again, there are benefits, but there, was also, there were also costs. And, and Boaz, he, he kind of waited to drop this on him, didn't he? There, there, there were costs in marrying Ruth. You, you see, if, if Poloni Almoni, if Mr. So-and-so, if he married Ruth, then his investment would not be returned to his estate. He wouldn't actually become the owner of all of it. Uh, they would have a child eventually, and that child 
would become the one who would inherit all the land that he would invest the next 20 years into. And above that, that child wouldn't even legally be considered his son. Biologically, it would be his son. He would treat him as his son. But when it came to legal matters, that son would inherit that land in the name of Malon, Ruth's husband who had died. It's possible also that he, was, he could have still been married. Uh, polygamy was not outlawed in these days. And so ladies, if your husband received this offer down at the city gates and came home and said, hey, guess what? I had this opportunity today. You know how things were going to go down when he shared that news, right? If he took the offer. And also, in addition to that, there would be long-term care for Ruth and for Naomi and for any children. And it would take away from his own children's inheritance, which he seems to have. So, so there were, were real costs involved. And so in verse 6, he, he refuses. But, but here's the brilliance of what Boaz has done. You, you see, the law didn't actually require Mr. Mr. So-and-so to marry Ruth. Boaz puts it out there, and he phrases everything in a way that there's incredible pressure on Mr. So-and-so to marry Ruth. And he's done so brilliantly because Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a foreigner living in the land of Israel. And so there's a loophole where Mr. So-and-so can buy the land from Naomi, but he doesn't have to marry Ruth and provide for her. He's not required. But Boaz recognizes that the, the letter of the law should be reflected in the heart of the law and, and, and how a person fulfills the letter of the law should, should honor the heart of the law. Boaz makes this offer in the gate of the city to bring moral and social pressure to bear on him. And, and the crux of the matter is that, that Ruth, as we've seen all through this story and as the town knows by now, Ruth is a, a woman of good character and she's become a, very well loved in Bethlehem. And so if Mr. So-and-so takes the land, but he rejects Ruth, which he can do, then he's going to be shamed. But if he took Ruth, he would be agreeing to father a child who would technically inherit the land in the name of Malon, not Poloni. And so what Boaz has done, it, it's shrewd, it's skillful. If you're watching a courtroom drama, you'd be going, yes, that was awesome. It, it was a brilliant move. But in the end, what he's really doing is he's showing not only the people all around there, but he's showing the, the man the importance of not only following the letter of the law, but also the heart of the law. Because you can follow the, the letter of the law and you can take advantage of those that are around you and you can take advantage of the situation to advance your own interests. But it's also important that we honor the heart of God's law and take care of the people that are around us. And so Boaz sets up the tension. We, uh, we have an unpredictable suitor, but also notice that there's a twist in the story. Read verses 7 through 12 with me. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. Part of the reason the, the comment is here in verse 7 um, the, the person who originally told the story, and it may have been an oral tradition, and then probably was written in the days of, of David or Solomon, um, they're, they're giving us this little uh, hint of a cultural thing that's happening here, because by the time David and Solomon are king, and this story has been written down on a scroll, 
um, this custom had kind of fallen out of practice. And so they need to explain a little bit for the people that are reading this, as well as for us that are living 3,000 years later, not just a few hundred years or a hundred. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moab, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May Yahweh make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. And so our, our passage, it starts out with this explanation of this custom, and uh, but then Ruth finishes the case, and he does it with precision. No, notice that this is uh, it's a legal declaration. Notice that there's witnesses all around. Uh, he set that up. And, and so basically, he is notarizing publicly the decision that's being made and what he intends to do. He's committing himself. But the way that he does it, it accomplishes it with finality. It not only commits himself, but with this, the sandal being exchanged at the gate, there's absolutely no way that Mr. So-and-so can come back and say, hey, you know what, I went down to the land and I, looks good, I, I'm willing to do it. And so there's, there's no opportunity for, for Poloni to change his mind. This is final, and not only has Boaz committed himself, but he's committed, he's committed Mr. So-and-so as well. But verse, verse 10 is the punch. Verse 10 is the twist. Do you remember, we, we talked about last week what Ruth offered to Boaz in chapter 3? Naomi wanted Ruth to marry Boaz, and so she goes to the threshing floor. She makes a real offer of marriage, but she changes the instructions just a little bit, and she offers herself as a concubine wife, a, a slave wife, somebody that would do the chores and, and just be there to take care of things, um, to have children and, and nothing much more. She wouldn't be an equal. And she does that because in being a second-class wife in that culture, Boaz would have to purchase Ruth. And in doing that, Ruth was providing for Naomi for the rest of her life. She was sacrificing her own interests, her own happiness, her own status as an equal in the house so that Naomi would be taken care of. Ruth asks for a second-class marriage. And he recognizes what a beautiful thing she's done. He says, what you've done here is more beautiful than the first thing you did by following your mother-in-law here. Boaz, here in this case, what he's done is he's accomplished all that same thing, all those same things in providing for Naomi by buying the land instead. And then with it, he marries Ruth. But he does something. Boaz changes the word. He changes the term from what Ruth had proposed and publicly in front of witnesses, so Ruth can't change his mind, nobody can change his mind, publicly he declares that he is going to take Ruth as his Isha, not an Amma, not a concubine wife who is a maidservant in the household, but a wife who is an equal. He intends Ruth to be his wife, an equal in his household. 
The purchase not only provides for Naomi through the purchase of the land, also provides Ruth by giving her security in a marriage where she's not a concubine. And also notice that, that both Naomi and, and Boaz, if, if you've been reading the story and notice all the prayers throughout of it, Naomi and Boaz have prayed for Ruth, and now both of them are the actual means that God uses to answer those prayers. And the transaction will also provide Naomi with an heir to carry on Elimelech's family name. And so notice how the people respond to what Boaz does. They, they start singing out praises. They, they're cheering him on, just like you and I are. They call out a blessing for Ruth. And, and it's not just Ruth the Moabitess, but they equate her with the founding mothers of their people, with Leah and Rachel. Ruth is a, a foreign woman, but throughout all of the story, she's been act, acted more Jewishly than anyone else. She's followed the, not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, even without knowing the laws of Israel. She's been more Jewish than anyone and everyone in the story. And she's demonstrated chesed, loving kindness, faithful love. And so the people bless Ruth. And they bless Boaz. They pray for prosperity. They pray for his reputation. They pray for his prominence in Judah. A and so verses 1 through 12 is this brilliant courtroom drama in an ancient context. A and by the end of it, not only should we be celebrating and cheering Boaz, who's, who's just nailed it, but, but the people are cheering. A and it was brilliant. But the book of Ruth's not done there yet, is it? There's a little bit more to go. First, we have a gift for the poor widow. Look at verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left a redeemer, a goel. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loved you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this first verse in verse 13 it has a very important message. And the narrator wants you to slow down again and, and don't miss it. You remember back to chapter 1, how the narrator, he was a tongue twister. Remember that one? Latetz, lachem, lahem. All right, he slows you down. I mean, you're reading through the verses 1 through 5, and all of a sudden you have to, whoa, I can't pronounce that. And you have to stop at verse 6. A and, and it calls out this fact that God gave the people bread. He gave to them bread. And here for the second time in the whole book, the narrator himself, not on the lips of the people, but the narrator himself mentions Yahweh by name, the God of Israel. But instead of giving them bread, like we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, here in chapter 4, verse 13, Yahweh gave her conception. Same phrase that's used in chapter 1. And there's an echo here. And you, you were supposed to stop and go, oh, I see what he did there. Same thing's happening as back in chapter 1. God gave her a son. And so God had provided for Israel when he gave them bread, and now God has provided a redeemer, a goel, for Naomi. He gave Ruth conception. And so the book of Ruth is a love story. The people say it out loud. Ruth loves you. 
it's the first time in the whole book. It's a book about love. It's a book about loving kindness and loving, faithful love. Chesed. But um, for the first time in the entire book, it's explicitly stated, your daughter-in-law loves you. We've seen it through her actions in all four chapters, but, but now, just in case you missed it, it's on the lips of the people, and they say it outright. The story of Bo- Ruth and Boaz and their love for Naomi. But don't miss the final act of love. Don't skip over the last act of chesed, which is displayed here. Naomi gets to share in the raising of the son. You see that? Obed is put on her lap, and she becomes his nurse. She's the one who, who takes care of him and cares for him and helps Ruth to raise him. And Boaz. We don't, we don't want to leave Boaz out, right? And so the tables have turned. And Naomi has learned an important lesson. When the journey was bitter at the beginning, she came back to Bethlehem, and Naomi had reasoned that God just had it out for her. Remember what she said? Life's, life's bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet one. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. But the same God who gave bread to the people has shown Naomi that he's a benevolent God who gives to poor widows like her and takes care of them in their time of need. And his chesed, his loving kindness, endures forever. But, but notice also that the story isn't quite done with that, though. After this great story, the narrator is going to conclude for us, and he's decided to give us a very exciting ending at, at the, the end of Ruth. And so he throws in, of all things, a genealogy. Right? Yeah, you're going, what? Really? What, what a way to say they lived happily ever after, right? A genealogy. Look at it. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nahon, Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. And you might be thinking, really? I mean, you could have just ended the book back at verse, verse 12 or 13, right? We already knew it was the grandfather, Ruth was the great-grandfather of, um, grandmother of David, but the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy? But I want you to notice something. Remember where we started in the book of Ruth. There was a big question that was being asked. Is God going to provide for Israel? Because there was a famine happening. The whole book, uh, then after verse 6, where, where it says God gave them bread, has been focused on Naomi and focused on this question of, is, is God going to provide for this poor widow? God provided bread for Israel at the beginning, but by the end of the book, God has provided for Naomi as well, but he brings things back around full circle, and he raises another question. Yes, he provided for Naomi, and and yes, long ago, God provided for Israel by giving them bread, but will God provide for Israel today, in the days of Solomon and David? And the answer of the book is yes. Yes, he has. God has provided for Israel. By the end of the book, God says, look, I'm still providing for you. But this time, rather than giving you bread, I'm going to give you a king. One who will rule over you. One who is a man after my own heart. And the book of Ruth, scholars believe, was probably written during the days of Solomon, possibly as early as the days of David. 
But the narrator is showing through the beauty of this story of chesed, of loving kindness, of Boaz and Ruth towards Naomi and Naomi towards Boaz and Ruth and, 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 and everyone's showing chesed to one another. And the beauty of this story, it's showing us that God has chesed for Israel. God is showing his loving kindness for the people that he has chosen. And this list that we have here of all these people, it's not a comprehensive list of every single generation from, from the beginning of Israel to, to, to David, but it's, it's a summary of several generations, and he specifically pulls out from those generations all the, the leaders of Judah. And he shows this continuity from Judah's son, all the, Perez, all the way to King David, showing us that God's providence is still found in Israel. But that leaves us with one final question. God provided for Naomi, the poor, destitute widow, and he gave her a son, Obed. And Obed was her kinsman redeemer. God provided for Israel, and he also gave them a son, David. And in essence, David was Israel's kinsman redeemer. But now we have a question 3,000 years later. Will God provide for you? God provide for his people today? Can God's providence still be found in the 21st century? And the answer is the same. Remarkably, it's through a son. God has provided for you. God gave Israel bread. God gave Ruth conception. So what has God given to you? I, I think Romans 3.24 says it most clearly. Couldn't say it more beautifully. In Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Paul writes, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus and so once again God gives to us a son and that son is our kinsman redeemer he's a close member of the family he's a close member of the family because remember Jesus took on flesh he became one of us he took on human flesh and our redeemer became one of us he's a close family member He's also one who redeems for us. He's our, he became our sacrifice. Jesus is our goel. He's the one who lavished on us his hen, his grace. This has demonstrated the most perfect chesed, his loving kindness, before we were ever able to love him. Romans 3.25 goes on to say, Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I, you see, we have a problem. I, Israel had a problem at the beginning of Ruth, didn't they? They didn't have bread. God gave them bread. Naomi had a problem. She needed a kinsman redeemer. God gave her Obed. God gave Ruth Obed. Israel had another problem. They needed a king. They needed a leader. And God gave them David. He gave them a son. But you and I also have a, a, an incredible problem. We, we, like Naomi, are destitute in our sin. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do and nothing that I can do about that sin. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. There's nothing that I can do to prove that, that I can be accepted by God. I, I cannot be good enough. I can't go to church enough. I can't be baptized enough. There, there's not one act or work that I can accomplish that I can stand before God and God will say, oh, finally, hey, you're in. You did it. Good job. I'm as helpless 
as Israel was to provide their own food without God giving it to them. I'm as helpless as Naomi to save herself from her, her poverty. We are helpless in our sin. And because of our sin, God's wrath is pointed towards us. We declared war on God and said we are enemies. We're not going to do it your way. And when we did so, God's wrath was unleashed on, on the human race. But out of his love for us, he said, I'm going to provide a way. I, I love you still. I, I, I will bring about justice and I will punish sin. But to do so, I am going to provide a sacrifice. I'm going to provide a kinsman redeemer, a goel for you. And, and Jesus came and he took on flesh and then he died on a cross. When um, Paul says in Romans 3.25 that he became that he was the propitiation. The word propitiation basically means that he satisfied God's wrath. Everything that Jesus did on the cross, it, it paid the price. The wrath that was pointed towards us that we could never satisfy was accomplished through the blood of Jesus. He gave what we could not give. And it needs to be received by faith, by believing. And so the gospel, the good news is this. We are lost in our sins, and there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, but we have a God who provided a way. And if you come to him and you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, he gives to you eternal life. He gives to you redemption. He provides propitiation for you. It's not any work that you do. Nothing that you can do to save yourself. And if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, not just knowing facts, but you've turned from your sin and turned to Jesus as your solution, then the Bible tells us that God has adopted you as his heir. He has provided to you forgiveness, and he's given to you eternal life. And it is as sure as anything else. There's nothing to take that away from you from all of eternity. But only if your faith has been placed in him. This morning, uh, we're going to continue our service with uh, uh, some baptisms. Now, our, we don't have a baptismal right here, so we do things a little bit different. Uh, so we're going to have a couple songs here in a couple moments, but then we're going to continue our service, and we're all going to go in the other room uh, in the fellowship hall where our baptismal is. And um, I, I want you to understand that, that baptism, uh, there, there's nothing magic about those waters. I filled that tub a couple days ago, and it's been warming up. It didn't heat up by itself. There's no magic oil in it. Um, there's nothing spiritual that's going to happen in the sense that, it, that it's going to take somebody to heaven. It, it's a spiritual experience. It is something that is, that is beautiful and is an incredible picture of our faith, but the water itself, there, there's nothing in it that saves a person. And the people that are being baptized today understand and realize that, that what they are doing today is not going to gain them any favor in the sight of God. Baptism is a declaration that one makes and says, look, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have put my faith in him, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I have turned from my sins to him as the final and only solution that could save me and grant me entrance into eternity. And baptism is this beautiful picture of what has already happened. It's a picture of a person dying to their old self and being buried. Uh, a person that has, has um, uh, they are no longer the person that they once were. Their relationship with sin has changed. Their relationship to themselves has changed. Their relationship to God has changed. And just like Jesus rose from the dead, God has raised that person to new life and given them life like they never had before. And so baptism is this incredible picture 
of what God has done for us and as an act of obedience, as one says, to the whole world. I've decided to follow Jesus, and it is in Him that my salvation, my eternity, my hope rests.